Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 14. I don't know how much international politics uh, interests you. Um, It interests Johnny an awful lot more than it interests me. Uh, But how about international politics 4,000 years ago? I can feel the yawn coming on already. But this is... This is a a fantastic and relevant passage for us living in the 21st century. And sometimes you get a hint what the writer is about when you read a passage simply by listening out for words that repeat themselves. And if you were to go through this passage and look for words that repeat themselves, you'd find one word stands out more than any other. It's the word king. King occurs 27 times in the Hebrew and it actually occurs 29 times in our English translation that we have in front of us in this chapter. You've got five kings who are from the, the, the region of the Dead Sea, south of, of Canaan, to this, the bottom of the country. And then you've got four kings who are spread out. If this is, if this is the promised land here, and this is the, the Dead Sea down at the bottom here. These other kings are spread out from Babylon, away over in the east, Iran, Iraq in today's language, and then up to Turkey, above to the north of Israel. So you have five kings, you have four kings. As we come to the end of the chapter, two kings are mentioned. One is a repeat the king of Sodom. One is new to the story, the king of Salem. Where do they meet Abram? In the valley of the kings. And then underlying it all, there's a king who's not mentioned. God himself. And so as we look at this, keep your eyes fixed on the kings for they're the the plot line and the key to the whole story. We're going to let the kings guide us uh, and then ask a key question at the end. And so first of all, we want to see Lot caught up with the defeated kings. Lot gets caught up with the defeated kings. So the kings that we read of in verse 1, they're part of an alliance uh, that takes in the modern day countries of Iraq and Iran and Turkey and they are a four-king alliance that are really based away over um, a thousand miles to the east. And they attack a five-king alliance who are in the south, to the, to the south of Abram, uh, near the Dead Sea. They demand protection money off these five kings. And that protection money, that tribute, is paid for 12 years. And in the 13th year, quite understandably, the five kings are fed up with this and they rebel. Now, it takes a while for the news to get back across to the king over in Shinar and his allies and for them to mobilize their troops and to travel right across from Shinar in Mesopotamia, away in the east, to meet up with the king from Turkey and then to come down and to attack And they come and they attack. Now why would those kings be interested in what's going on in a little patch of land to the south of the Dead Sea? Well, Mesopotamia is not rich in minerals and metals. 
And this is the Bronze Age. And to make bronze, you need copper. And guess where is rich in copper? The south of the Dead Sea. And so these kings are being cut off from the, the, the cutting edge of modern technology. And they're not having it. And so they come and they attack. And we're actually told the very route they attack. And it shows us their great sense of strategy. They, they come down from the north. Um, from, from up about Turkey. And they come down through the country in what's called the King's Highway. And rather than coming straight to the five kings, they go down and they attack one by one their enemies. Uh, their, sorry, they, the, ally, the potential allies for the five kings. They come down and they attack them. Uh, and then they, they come round down below the five kings and they attack the kings that would be down below them and the nations down below them. And then they come up. And what they've done is they've, it's like they start at Fanad Lighthouse and they come down through Milford and Ramelton. And their target's Letter Kenny, but instead of attacking Letter Kenny directly, they, 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 they sail over the Swilly and they, they come round by Lifford and they thrash Lifford. They come up through Rafoe and they, they sack Rafoe through convoy, they decimate convoy. And then, having basically cut off Letter Kenny from all its allies, they would attack Letter Kenny. That's what they do here. This is great strategy. And then they head home victorious and engorged with the plunder and Lot whom we read in verse 12 is living in Sodom the city uh, that we've already been told is renowned for its wickedness and that's a sad movement on Lot's part he's moved from being in a tent outside the city uh, looking after his flocks and herds, but now he's in the city. And that movement, that he's, he's made himself at home in a place that's renowned for its wickedness and sinfulness. Now remember, this isn't saying that we should have nothing to do with the world around us. That's not what we're saying. Abram is in an alliance with his neighbours, but it's on Abram's terms. What we always have to ask ourselves is, Who is influencing whom? And Lot, sadly, is being influenced rather than being an influence. And the mess that he's in in this chapter is because of his choice. He couldn't have foreseen it. But if he hadn't been where he shouldn't have been, he wouldn't have got into the mess. Let me say it again. If he hadn't been where he shouldn't have been, he wouldn't have got caught up in this mess. If he had determined to stay well away from this city, instead of being increasingly attracted to it, then when trouble hit, he would have been miles away. And here's a warning for us. There's lots of great practical lessons in this. When we camp too close to the world, we shouldn't be surprised when we get caught up in its troubles. Let me give an illustration, um, just a very simple, obvious one. A young person's hanging out with their friends. Nothing wrong there, but these friends have some dubious habits. Uh, and they get stopped one night by the guards and the car searched and drugs are found. And a cloud of suspicion hangs over all in the car. And that goes on that young person's record 
although they had nothing to do with it, personally. And it impacts their employment prospects and damages their future. If they hadn't been where they shouldn't have been, they wouldn't have found themselves in that predicament. And there's a warning uh, to us. Here's Lot caught up. Um, He's caught up in this mess. Caught up in the defeat. And a man then escapes and comes and tells Abram. And Abram, instead of thinking, well, Lot, you've made your bed. You've got to lie in it. You've got to learn the hard lessons the hard way. Which sometimes has to happen. Sometimes that has to happen. But this isn't about learning a hard lesson. This could mean slavery. It could mean death for Lot. It could mean all sorts of horrors for Lot's daughters. And so Abram sets off in pursuit. And we're told the place names. And if we were to get out a map, we would find that Abram doesn't just cut them off at the pass a few miles down the road. He sets off on about a week-long pursuit that's going to take him 110 miles to start with. Possibly four, five, six days. Four days going really hard at it. And he he arrives. They they, they arrive. The the outlying scouts, the outrider scouts of Abram's force spot the army of the five kings. And they perhaps report back to Abram and say, they're up ahead, they haven't seen us. Abram says, settle, we'll wait for nightfall. He divides his forces in two. And they attacks in the dark of night. And they routes these five, four kings who have been superb in their strategy thus far. He routes them. And he, he doesn't stop there. He pursues them another 40 miles north until he has recovered everything that has been taken. It's remarkable given the success that these kings had had so far. And it's remarkable, we remember Abram in Egypt. He's so cowardly. Oh, no, no, that's not my wife. That's, that's my sister. No, 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 no. You, you can take her and marry her if you wish. He wouldn't even stand up for his wife. What a change in this man. There's something wonderfully Christ-like about him. What does he do? He leaves the safety that he has to rescue others whose own stupidity got them into the mess they're in. Where have you heard or seen that before? One who left safety to rescue foolish people who have got themselves into a mess. It's Jesus. It's the sort of thing that Christ did. And there's something wonderfully Christ-like about Abram in this moment. But before we leave this moment, having seen the, the, the contrast between Lot and Abram and the mess that Lot got himself in, but also look, There's something really encouraging here. This is a moment of international politics. Abram is on the world stage. And what do we see? Remember, this is God telling us history from his perspective. But it's not God putting his own spin on history. Because God is the author of history. This is history as it is. And history, we see, revolves round Not the kings, but God's man. God's people. They're at the heart of history. These kings, the nine of them, are the big players of the day. You've got the five copper barons. And you've got the four uh, superpowers. 
They controlled the fertile crescent. The other ones controlled the metal industry. And they're a footnote in Abram's story. Should that not give us confidence as Christians? Too often we read history from man's perspective. The story of man's land and man's world. But this is God's world. And we see that world events can't dislodge God's people. But we do see that they can sweep up those who have anchored themselves themselves too close to the world. And there's a warning for us. Lot is nearly swept away. He's anchored too... He's not actually anchored too close to it. He's anchored to the world. And when his world gets swept away, Lot is dragged along with it. Like a boat that has anchored itself to a whale. You know, you know the scene you know, from, is it, is it Moby Dick? Where the boat is harpooned, um, the, 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 the small boat, they harpoon the whale, and the whale takes off. And the boat is dragged along after. That's Lot. That's Lot here. World events are taking him on into danger. But Abram's faith, he's not anchored to the world. He's anchored to God, and his faith allows him to interact with world events and to stay intact amidst those events. He's not caught up in soul-crushing, spirit-crushing defeat. So, Lot caught up with the defeated kings. That's the first 16 verses. And then the story takes a sideways step. What would you expect to happen next in the story? You would expect Abram to return home and triumph and there to be a parade and a jubilant welcome. But, two kings come out to meet him. One of Judah's favourite poems is by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, it starts. Well, two kings come out to meet him. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Uh, and the, 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 the walker in this forest is, is wondering, which path will I take? Will two kings come out to Abram? And which king will Abram respond to? And we see, first of all, Abram tested by the disdainful king, the haughty king. Watch as these two kings come out. One is the king of Sodom. He's had perhaps a week or two weeks to recover his standing, uh, to wash off perhaps the tar. Maybe he was one who fell into the tar pits or hid in them. And the other is the king of Salem. We haven't met him yet, but we're going to meet him. And what's the contrast that Moses the writer sets up? Two kings come out. One comes out laden with food and drink. The other comes out empty handed. One comes out and he speaks a word of blessing. The other one is silent initially, but when he speaks, he makes a demand. See the contrast? He says, Give me the people. His first words to the man who's rescued all his stuff and all his citizens and all his subjects. Give me them. See the contrast? One offers blessing from God. And the other, the king of Sodom, actually offers what he doesn't have. Who has all the people? Who has all the money? Abram. 
And the king of Sodom says, give me the people and you can have the money. Well, actually, everyone says, I've got everything. Do you see? There's a, the contrast is even clearer in their names. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Bera. We call him King Bera. His name would be Melech Bera. King Bera means king in evil. Or sounds like king in evil. Who's he going to choose? The king of righteousness who comes bringing blessing from God? Or the king of evil who comes making demands and promising to make him rich? Oh, and rich it would be. The wealth of five cities? Wow. Wow. Imagine the wealth of five cities. Oh, it's tempting, isn't it? It's tantalizing. It's right there in front of Abram. God had said that that Abram would be blessed. Who will Abram choose? Oh, didn't we think the test of his faith was going after these other kings and rescuing them? But now what test is this? He's just come back and, and he's hit with another test of his faith. And that's what the king of Sodom is doing. There's a test for Abram here. Whom will he look to for blessing and enrichment? The king of Sodom is offering to make Abram rich beyond his wildest dreams. Who will Abram choose? And Abram sees something important going on. He's thought about this and he's made an oath. And he has raised his hand, he says, before God. And he has made an oath and he has said, I have sworn that I will not take even a thread or a strap off a sandal, two of the least significant things from this treasure trove. I wouldn't even, if, if my sandal strap had broken, I wouldn't take a strap out of your treasure trove to fix it. If... If my garment had started to fray, I wouldn't take a thread out of what you've got to fix it, he says. Because I know you, he says to the king of Sodom. I know that you will take the glory and you will take the credit for enriching me. You will say, I made Abram rich. You see Abram and all his splendor? I made him. And Abram won't have it because God promised to make Abram wealthy. God promised to provide for Abram. God promised to bless Abram. God was to get that glory. And Abram won't let. Blessing come to him. Outside of God's way of blessing. And that's the key. Abram will not let blessing come to him. Outside of God's way of blessing. And I want us to note a couple of things on this point before we leave it. First, sometimes the real test comes after we've been through something hard. Sometimes the real test comes when we've been successful. Things have gone well for us. Maybe our exams have gone well. Maybe we've got a job. Maybe... Uh, sales have gone well at the mart or wherever. Or perhaps 
We've, we've got a good, a big contract for something. And we're, we're delighted. And the test often comes then. Abram had triumphed in the war, but there's a bigger challenge awaiting him. Whom will he trust? Whom will he trust to provide for him? Whom will he trust to bless him? So watch out for temptation that comes after success, after perhaps even answered prayer. Watch. You know, Satan loves to come in at that moment. Think of Jesus. He's, there's that moment at his baptism where the heavens open and the Father says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And what happens? Out into the wilderness, Satan lands in. Makes a beeline for God the Son. After a time of great blessing, he comes in to seek to tempt him away. And actually, what does he do? He offers something he doesn't have. He offers Jesus a kingdom. Satan doesn't have any kingdoms. In that sense. That's exactly what's going on here. But that's the second thing that we need to watch for. Is watch for blessing being offered outside God's promise or outside God's provision. Where we could have something that would be good, but we have to step outside of God's way to get it. Uh, I know that the the older young people were talking a couple of weeks ago in Sabbath school about um, God's plans for marriage. And here's an example of that. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful blessing. But if, if we're following Jesus and we try to get that blessing by stepping outside God's way of getting it where he says that we are only to marry somebody who also loves Jesus, then that's going to bring heartache and turmoil in our lives. Getting a, a good thing outside of God's way. Abram says, no, no, I won't have it. I won't have it. So watch, watch for these tests that come after things have been going well. Thirdly, Abram, we see he chooses the divine king. Now this king isn't God, but he is God's king. He is God's man, Melchizedek. Now I think at some stage we will take an entire sermon to look at Melchizedek, not in the next few weeks, but uh, maybe as a one-off sometime, because there's much to be said about him. But Melchizedek is the king of the Most High, or the, the priest of the Most High God. He's king in Salem, which would later become Jerusalem, God's city. He's a God-fearer in the midst of a pagan world. God had kept and preserved some measure of truth throughout the long centuries since Noah. And this, this king comes out to Abram. And he meets Abram. And he pronounces a wonderful blessing on Abram from God. And the challenge for Abram here is, which king will he bow to? Will he bow to God's king and accept God's blessing? And not just God's blessing, but he's acknowledging, look at verse 20, that it was God Not Abraham's genius, but it was God who delivered the enemies into his hand. 
Will Abram bow the knee and say, yes, God, it was you. I want to honour you, God. I want to show my allegiance to you. And that's what he does, because that's what we read in the next verse. Whenever he takes of uh, what he himself had plundered, because these, these kings had plundered many cities and that great hook shape that they came down through and, and ransacked lots of other cities. Abram has lots of plunder from there. And he gives a tenth of it to God, acknowledging that God is the one that he serves. That God is the one who has given him the victory. That God means everything to him. And the choice between being enriched by the world or by serving God, Abram says, I will choose the divine king. I will choose God as my king. And we see, we see his allegiance stated in two ways. He states it positively by giving a tenth. And then he states it negatively by turning to the king of Sodom and saying, No, I don't want anything from you. I don't want anything from you at all. This king gets my obedience, my allegiance. God gets my worship. So that brings us to the question that we finish with. To us. What will you do? Which king will you choose? Abram presents us with the question. Which king will we serve? Which king will we choose to enrich us? Four responses just to finish with in closing. Four questions. Will you miss the point of history? Will you miss the point of history? You see, if you look to be part of world history, you miss what history is about. That's what these first 11 verses show us. These kings, so famous in their day, are forgotten about. But Abram isn't. The kings of the earth, as Sam too puts it, take their stand. They do their own thing. And God mocks them all. And if they're forgotten about, how much more the ordinary human being. And yet here is Abram. He's not a mover and a shaker in the, the world of the 20th century B.C. He's a little farmer in Canaan. And yet he's part of God's great plan of salvation. Dare I say it, maybe you're a little farmer in Donegal. Maybe you're a mussel farmer. Maybe you're just, I'm going to get killed for this. Maybe you're just a housewife. Some of you ladies have had that said to you, haven't you? Oh, how the world sees us. I had somebody say to me, and do you get paid for preaching? And can you... Can you make a living off that? Just a preacher. You know? That's how the world sees us. We're just the little people. And yet this chapter reminds us that the kings were the nobodies. And God's man. God's people. History was shaped around them. And how that should encourage us 
as we seek to live for God, whether it's as farmers or painters or housewives or mums or office workers or students or farmers or whatever it might be. Whatever it might be, as we seek to live for God, living for God, wherever He's put us, we are at the heart of history. Will you miss the point of history? And the, obvi- the, the opposite of that is true. That if we seek to find our significance in being famous, outside of God we will end up nobodies. We want our friends to like us. If we make that our goal, we will end up crushed by it. We will end up nobodies. Secondly, will you slide like Lot? Lot slides. There is pathos and tragedy in verse 12. Since he was living in Sodom. It's succinct and it's sorrowful. It marks a slide that can happen in any Christian's life. When we begin to settle in amongst the values of the world around us. To walk with them. To stand with them. To sit with it, those values. When we want to blend in rather than stand out. And what makes it sadder for Lot is that even after such a close escape... When we turn over a few chapters, where is he? He's still there. I know that happens. Some professing Christians have had remarkable wake-up calls, a, a close shave when God graciously spares them from an accident or an outcome of, of their foolish decisions. And instead of seizing a fresh leaf of li- lease of life, And running from where they had been and saying, no, I need to get away from that. And I need to recommit myself to God. They put their roots back. They put their roots back in the place where they were. Like Lot. Lot, run to the hills. Lot, get out. Go. But no, he doesn't. Will you slide like Lot? Oh, please, please, if God has, has warned you from this passage or from your circumstance and I, don't put your roots back down. Don't. Third question is, will you miss mercy like Sodom? Will you miss mercy like Sodom? When we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of the fire and brimstone And the cataclysmic destruction of Genesis 19. We may even think, oh that's a bit harsh God. They were destroyed. And they seem to have no opportunity to repent. Oh but here's a piece of the jigsaw we forget. Two pieces. Maybe three. There's Melchizedek, the faithful minister of God and king nearby. Only 35 miles away. And meets the king of Sodom here. There's Abraham, whom they know, another piece of the jigsaw, who rescued them. And there's God, who spared them in this wonderful rescue. They have both seen and experienced the deliverance of God. And the sad thing for Sodom was that having been rescued once, 
they failed to take the opportunity to repent. This chapter highlights mercy to Sodom when God was under no obligation to show it. God could have kept it simple and said, well, I know that I'm going to judge that city. We'll just let this be the day and those kings can do it. But God said, no. There was a duplication to God's work. He said, no, I'll rescue them so that they have another opportunity. And they didn't take it. Oh, as professing Christians sometimes have wake-up calls, so too do those who are outside of Christ. Has God been warning you? Sending things your way? You know you've had a narrow escape. Are you listening? Which king will you choose? Which city? Salem or Sodom? Jerusalem or Sodom? And then the fourth question. Will you choose like Abram? Will you choose like Abram? Oh, there's something wonderfully noble about Abram here. As he chooses, again, he chooses God's way. Again, he chooses God's way. And often, friends, that's what happens in the Christian life. It's a repeated having to choose God's way. It's not a once-off. It's a repeated thing that we need to keep doing and doing and doing. And here's encouragement to keep choosing God's King. King Jesus Keep doing it. He's the king who provides. He's the king who comes to you with bread and wine and says, I will pour out blessing on you. Did you see that? That's no accident that Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine. He's a great signpost to Jesus Christ, the one who blesses and provides for his people who keep on trusting him. Robert Frost wrote, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And he finished up by saying, And I, I took the one less travelled by. And that has made all the difference. Abram took the king less travelled by. And that made all the difference. Keep walking down that narrow path. Keep choosing that king. And you'll find that it makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for this somber passage and yet encouraging passage from your word. We thank you for what it shows us about history. Thank you for the place that you give to ordinary people in your sovereign plan. And Father, we pray that you would help us, help us, that we will not, like Lot, slide and put roots down where we shouldn't, where we will value what we shouldn't, where we will take on values that we shouldn't. Lord, guard us. Guard, guard us particularly when things have started to go well for us that we will not forget you. Guard us, Lord. Guard our young people in particular, we pray. And Father, help us to keep choosing King Jesus and to give him our worship and our allegiance and to keep on doing it day in, day out. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.